Okay, guys, um, uh, we, we continue this look at Roman Catholicism. Um, may I say we've, we've really only covered one section, which I think was the most important of all the sections, having to do with uh, sola fides, justification by faith alone, and the differences, and really the, uh, the, the differences in the gospel. And we spent three weeks on that, and, and I, uh, you know, y'all get on to me because we move so slowly through Romans, and, and, I, and I originally thought that, um, you know, this would be seven or eight little Wednesday nights on Roman Catholicism and four or five on Islam, and, you know, but, uh, guys, it's, it's gonna be more than that. I just wanna warn you, um, <laughs> see there? I, I, persecuted for righteousness sake. Is, <clears throat> um, I, I, I put in a good deal of time just figuring out what is next. After sola fides, what should we look at next? What is it that, that, that at least I thought, and I'm not sure I'm right, but I thought was in, 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 in terms of importance, the next on the list. The next thing after you, after you've seen the incredible differences in the, in the, in the, the answers to the question, how can a man be right before God? Once you've seen that in those first three weeks, now what what what's next? I told you when we began, I didn't want to nitpick. I, I you know I don't want to go through all the things about eating fish on Fridays and all that business. I wanted to I wanted to pick up foundational things, important things, substantive things, because I, I really don't believe that the Christian Church has the foggiest notion about the chasm that exists in terms of difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And so, um, you know, again, I'm not... Um, Brent, I don't think these are the right... I don't think these are the right things, are they? Um, they they'll work? Yeah, this, uh, this $1,200 machine that we're... Um... Uh, again, where was I when I was so rudely interrupted? Um, just trying to figure out what's, what's the next thing in the order, uh, because I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bore you with trivia. Guys, um, we're going to be in red tonight, guys. How about that? Um, does anybody like red? The thing that we're going to talk about is, um, I thought we were going to be in red. Um, papal infallibility. Now, the the reason that, that I've chosen this as second uh, it is only going to become clear in a few in a little while. I, I've got to explain myself as to why I think this is really next up in terms of importance. So. Um, stay with me. Uh, let me give you just a couple of quick facts. Um, Papal infallibility was dogmatized by the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican I in 1870. But uh, its origins, the origins of papal infallibility, are are a lot older than that, all the way back to, uh, oh, the 13th century. And it's an interesting read uh, to discover what really caused the the rise of this notion of papal infallibility. Um, The the first time that the, the whole idea of papal infallibility was mentioned the um the 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 present pope when he heard the idea called it a pernicious novelty well it is no longer considered a pernicious novelty it's considered um mainstream uh 
a Roman Catholic uh, position. Now, guys, um, <clears throat> of course, the text, the, the proof text for this uh, used by the Roman Catholic Church is Matthew 16. Um, I, I think it's verses 17 through 19. You know the story when when Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? And, and uh, then he says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's... That's the, um, that's the text that is used to establish this whole thing of papal infallibility, and we'll look at it uh, more closely. But it was that, uh, this, um, this text where Peter is identified as the rock, um, and, um, that was extrapolated into Jesus designating Peter as the first Pope, which was then further teased out into a Roman supremacy, which later became the succession of popes, that Peter passed that on to the next man and the next man, etc. <clears throat> it is this text from which all of that is drawn um, by the Roman Catholic Church. Let me say um, rather quickly, the Pope is not always infallible. I mean, Roman Catholic, Roman Catholicism does not teach that. Roman Catholicism teaches that he is infallible only when he is speaking ex cathedra. Maybe you've heard that term before. Um, which is a Latin phrase which means from the throne. He is infallible only when he's speaking ex cathedra, only when intended for the entire church, not something regional or local. And thirdly, only in matters pertaining to faith and morals. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that um, this doctrine of papal infallibility is perhaps there's 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 no there's no element of the whole papal system that causes Roman Catholicism more embarrassment than does this uh, papal infallibility because it can be so easily disproved and so so many illustrations of of its breakdown. But when you're talking about Papal infallibility, you're not, it, it does not relate to him as a man. That is, um, as to suggest that he would be sinless. That is not being taught at all. Some of the, uh, the popes, um, have been grossly immoral and some even borderline illiterate. Um, uh, Pope Alexander VII from 1492 to 1503 was known to have had six illegitimate children. But papal infallibility has nothing to do with the sinlessness or sinfulness of the man. It simply has to do with if he is speaking from the throne, if he is speaking for the church in its entirety, and when it comes to faith and morals... Um, he can conceivably be speaking illegitimately. But another issue that, that, um, that arises at this point, guys, is that the Roman Catholic Church has never provided a comprehensive list of things, of statements from the popes that were to be considered ex cathedra and thus infallible. There's no list out there to tell you which ones were and which ones weren't. For instance, the uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary 
Um, you know, some of you know of a, of, there's a, there's a school here in Memphis. Uh, there's a church here in Memphis called IC. Immaculate Conception. And if I were to poll you, if I were to go to each person in this room and ask you what that meant, you wouldn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, in fact, you would confuse that immaculate conception with the virgin birth, saying that Jesus was born immaculately. Well, that's not true. That's not what immaculate conception means. It means not only was Jesus born of a virgin, but that Mary, Mary was uh, said to have bypassed any sinful, uh, uh, any passing on of sin. In her conception, that Mary was immaculately conceived. That's what immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It has to do with Mary. Well, that was one such um, papal pronouncement um, <clears throat> that is considered infallible that was done ex cathedra for the whole church having to do with faith and morals. But my, the point I'm simply making is that um, there's no list of which ones were considered to be infallible and which ones, which, ones, which ones weren't. So we're left to guess as to which ones are considered infallible and which ones are not. Now, guys, um, what I'm trying to do is make sure you understand what this means first before I begin to... Um, I don't want to use mean words. I, I don't, um, but I was about to use the word attack, uh, which is a kind of a, you know, a Sarah, Sarah Palin uh, target word. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to, but I don't know what else to say. Uh, what I've just told you is what they what they teach. And so now I have to at least attack it. <laughs> uh, I don't know what other word to use for you guys. Um The Roman Catholic Church says that according to Matthew chapter 16, that, G- that Jesus Christ appointed Peter as the first pope. Um, and in that same passage, that Jesus Christ gave to him the keys of the kingdom. Um, the keys of the kingdom, uh, having all kinds of powers. For instance, um, the Roman Catholic Church says, how does the pope have the right to to draw out of the treasury of merit and apply it to some of those of us who may need it. Well, he can do that because he has the keys of the kingdom. Now, that's, that's what, that's what we're taught in this particular, um, this particular position in the Roman Catholic Church. I want to, I want to read you one statement, uh, that came from uh, Pope Leo the 13th of 1880, in 1885. That would have been after Vatican I in 1870 to dogmatize this particular position. And here's why I think, this is one of the reasons, I have two reasons. But one of the reasons that I think it is second in terms of importance that we understand. It's a simple statement, but I'm quoting him, and he says, The Pope holds upon earth the place of God Almighty. Now, I, I, I hope I'm not the only one in the room that is um, concerned about a statement like that. That the Pope holds the place on earth of God Almighty. 
that's a that's a pretty bold statement, is it not? Now, that's one of the reasons that I think it should be uh, of our concern secondly. But let me explain myself just a little bit further. Okay, try to stay with me, guys, because this is not easy. There's a lot of stuff to say, and, and how to fit it all in is, is somewhat uh, of a challenge. Interestingly, at least for me, before the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant Reformation, uh, we'll say, <clears throat> we'll give it a date of 1517. Before the Protestant Reformation, this passage, Matthew 16, was rarely used to establish or to support any kind of uh, papal claims. So here's the first thing that I'm saying in terms of trying to overturn this thing. If if papal infallibility is a truism, and it came to be dogmatized in 1870, and um, it was rarely ever even mentioned. The first time it was mentioned, it was called um, uh, a pernicious novelty. If it was ever, if it was rarely even mentioned in, let's say, the first 1,500 years of the Christian church, um, why is it that it took the church 1,500 years to come to the conclusion that the Pope was indeed infallible? Um, why is it that no one prior to the Protestant Reformation ever used this text the way that it is being used today by Roman Catholicism? For instance, Augustine, who is, who is sainted in the Roman Catholic world, and, and we love St. Augustine, but St. Augustine went out of his way to say that the rock in um, this passage, does not refer to Peter. Why is it that in the first 1,500 years of the church, this was never this text was never used that way? Well, the, the simple answer is that for the first 1,500 years of the church, the rock that is mentioned in, in Matthew 16, the rock was interpreted and understood to mean either Christ or Peter's profession of faith. Now, guys, go back to the passage. You remember, um, uh, Jesus asked Peter, whom do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus replies by saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. <clears throat> and so... For the first 1,500 years and maybe even 1,800 years of the church, the rock upon which the church would be built was considered by all manner of interpreters as either being Christ himself or Peter's profession of faith. But after the Protestant Reformation was launched and there was this enormous break between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, some 300 years later, it is now discovered that the, the right interpretation of that word is to underscore that the Pope, in certain instances, is infallible. Guys, um, Roman Catholicism uh, states that the papacy was established by Christ 
and that Peter was a supreme apostle on whom Jesus Christ would build his, build his church. And to Peter, Jesus Christ has given the keys of the kingdom. I'm simply saying that that fact that is now held as dogma was missed by the church for the first 15 years, 100 years of her existence. Now, I hope you understood that, because that's not my punchline. Here's my punchline. This is why I'm, in addition to that quote about being the um, God on earth, um, that argument that I just outlined for you, that the interpretation of this text, that Peter was the rock, and Jesus was going to build his church on Peter, and he committed to him the keys of the kingdom. That position that was missed by the church um, for the first 1,500 years, that argument means absolutely nothing to a Roman Catholic. means absolutely nothing, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's completely irrelevant. The argument that I just gave you is completely irrelevant to Rome for this reason. Roman Catholicism has basically three, what shall I, um, I'll call it, I don't like this word, but Roman Catholicism has basically three organs of infallibility. Number one, there are bishops. Number two, there are councils. Three, there's the Pope. All three, all three of these, ladies and gentlemen, are at times, in Roman Catholic dogma, infallible. Now, <clears throat> which leads me to say that the one sola that the Roman Catholic Church does hold to is what is called... Um, Sola Ecclesia. Now, let me explain. You know what the word ecclesia means? It means the church. So in, in Roman Catholic dogma, the, the agency that possesses infallibility is the church. So, my argument about the church missing this whole thing for 1,500 years means nothing because the church has become autonomous. It's become a law to itself. It basically believes what it believes it believes. The church now has become the final determiner of truth through its bishops, through its councils, through its pope. Consequently, we could have doctrines like these, the Immaculate Conception, that had absolutely nothing to do with anything that grew out of the Scriptures, but because the church is infallible, the reason that it is true 
is because the church is infallible. And therefore, any type of argument, any type of proof, any type of suggestion absolutely is irrelevant because the church has spoken. Consequently, you can have all manner of crime and or evil, like the treasury of merit, like the ascension of Mary, like the immaculate conception of Mary, like the co-redemptrix of Mary. None of it. None of it has any roots. None of it, ladies and gentlemen, has any kind of root in the scriptures. Its root is all found here. Let me ask you a question. Do you like your church? I hope you do. I happen to be the pastor of it. But do you think that your church is infallible? Ladies and gentlemen, I can assure you you don't believe that because of the emails that I get every Monday morning. (laughs) But how would you like to be living in an environment where there's no explanation... There's no defense, there's no, there's no source of truth to which we go and draw out of. It is simply something that has been discovered by one or all of those uh, institutions. And so you end up with who knows what, theologically, doctrinally, and then when there is a argument you retreat to infallibility. I I don't know of anything that's more dangerous. I don't know anything that's more pernicious than to place God's people in the posture of saying, well, (laughs) I don't know that I really agree with that, but uh, oh, it's infallible? Oh, okay. End of discussion. That's why I started the way I did, ladies and gentlemen, by telling you this argument that the church missed it for the first 1,500 years. That means nothing. I'm going to give you some more arguments. But I want you to know they mean nothing. Now, they might help you. They might help me in terms of dismissing such a thing. Ladies and gentlemen, because the church is basically, the Roman Catholic Church is basically autonomous. It's a law to itself. There's really no getting beyond what the church, the church, I've got a couple of articles here and I, and really if you're, I mean, I, uh, I, I dare not read them to you because that would just bore you to tears. But I'm telling you, you really ought to read these two. You know, just stop by the table and read them about the chaos that's, that's existed in Roman Catholicism and, and then basically saying that it, whatever the church says is right, and that's, that's it. And the, uh, the defense is that the bishops, the councils, and the popes, or the pope, is infallible in certain occasions. Now, of course, we, not, we have no list of all the, the infallible statements, but we know that a few are, and I just... I just gave you one that we know is um, an infallible decree, and that is the Immaculate Conception of Mary. From whence came such a notion? 
You know, sometimes, every now and then, ladies and gentlemen, for instance, purgatory is something that has kind of a root in the Apocrypha. Do you know what the Apocrypha is? We're going to talk about the Apocrypha, too, later on. But the Apocrypha is some is some non-inspired books that came between the Old and the New Testament. And there is at least some way that you could trace the Apocrypha, excuse me, the uh, uh, Purgatory, into the Apocrypha, which is a, just a little body of books. But the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that ain't even in the Apocrypha. From whence cometh it? And I don't know of anything more dangerous. That's why I put it in second place. After the gospel, after the, uh, the, the defense of justification by faith alone, if, if, you, if you hold on to something like this, then there's no telling what you're supposed to believe and when that's going to change or when it's going to be added to, ladies and gentlemen. And that, I think, is a... Um, I think what you have, as I said, is a sola ecclesia. That is, it's the church alone that's determining truth. You wouldn't let us do that, would you? You would be nutso to do so. In fact, when you started looking for a church, what did you look for? Did you start looking for a church that um, um, was infallible? No, you were looking for a church that somehow handled the scriptures in a way that you felt were honest and full of integrity and and true to the truth. You wanted somebody that would tell you what God had to say. Okay? Because for you, the final arbiter of the truth is the scriptures. Not for Roman Catholicism, ladies and gentlemen. Not for Roman Catholicism. Um, in fact... Um, In Roman Catholicism, for the New Testament to be infallible, Roman Catholics insist that the church must be infallible to have a new, an infallible New Testament. Do you know why that's true? Because it was <clears throat> in a council of the church where the 33 books of the New Testament were received. That's a key word, and we'll explain it later on. But, um, but because the church put its stamp of approval on the books of the New Testament, the Roman Catholic position is that for the church to, reha- to for the church to have a, um, uh, an infallible New Testament, she must have an infallible church that gave her the new, infallible New Testament. Now, if that reasoning is so, ladies and gentlemen, then to have an f- infallible Old Testament means that we must have an infallible Israel. And does anybody in here believe that Israel is infallible? I mean, do you see the, the, the logic here? But it was the church, ladies and gentlemen, that stamped its approval on the infallibility of the, of the, of the New Testament. And the reason that we believe that the, in, the New Testament is infallible is because the church has said so. It's a very slippery Slope, to say the very least, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <clears throat> now, let me let me say one other thing, and then I'll. Oh my gosh, it's time to go to bed. <laughs> um, at least for me. Um, 
Guys, just one further little piece of the puzzle, and then we'll come back in March sometime. Um, that is, if I don't die over the Indian Ocean. I'm just kidding, Sue. <laughs> um, yeah, she's just yawning. I'm, oh, shut up. Just good. Um, guys, if it could be proved, now, I, I, you know, hypothetical statements that start like that are always dangerous statements. So just kind of stay with the argument. If it could be proved that the rock in Matthew 16 was indeed Peter, if that could be proved, now it can't, but I'm just saying for the sake of the argument, if it could be proved that um, that the rock was Peter, then the leap from there, once you've got Peter being the rock, then you leap from there to succession. You know what succession means? That is, the next guy, the second guy who's the Pope, has the same authority that the first guy, Peter, had. There's this succession of Popes. So you leap from Peter being the first pope to the whole idea of succession. From there you leap to the whole idea of the papacy. And from there you have to leap all the way over to infallibility. Because that's exactly what Roman Catholicism has done. By taking this one word, out of Matthew 16, on this rock I'll build my church. They have said that Peter was the first pope. There is a succession of popes which led to a papacy and has resulted in infallibility. All coming from the use of that word. Gang, that is textually groundless. That whole, that whole, that whole system. Textually, do you understand what I mean by that? There is not one piece of reason to extrapolate, even if you could prove that this was Peter, to extrapolate from here all the way down to here, which is what Roman Catholicism does. <clears throat> I'm saying, guys, that um, because Rome has done that, done that with a text that says nothing about succession, nothing about papacy, nothing about infallibility, and is a, is a wrong handling of, of the word itself, but I, I think. But because Rome has done that, what you have theologically and doctrinally and biblically is utter chaos in the ranks, in the Roman Catholic ranks. All of which stems from believing in the church alone as opposed to something else that we'll talk about later. This to me, ladies and gentlemen, right under sola fides, is a very serious matter. And, and if I were a Roman Catholic, and if you are a Roman Catholic here tonight, I would, all we're trying to do is to is to sort out the fact that we are under the Roman Catholic anathema. 
we as evangelicals, I read you that, I'll go back and get it, it's in my office, that we, as a, as a result, we evangelicals, we Protestants, um, as a result of Vatican II, are under the anathema of the church. We're just trying to figure out whether we should really convert to Roman Catholicism. So if you are Roman Catholic here, I would suggest to you that this is a very dangerous piece of footing that you're on. Um, you're just going to have to make that call. Let's quit there. Our Father, I, I do ask that you would um, that you would baptize your people in the spirit of truth. That you would um, immerse them, marinate them in that which is true truth, in which will lead them into a path of holy living and that would give them great confidence in more confidence in the Savior that we call um, Christ Jesus the Lord. Father, I pray that um, the information that we get here would not be used um, um, contentiously but it might be used uh, evangelistically that you might enable us to uh, when the when the right time happens and when the window the door opens that you'll arm us and equip us to be uh, agents of great gospel witness for all those who will lend us their ears we ask all of this of course in the name of Christ Jesus the lord amen thank you and good night